Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for January, February and March 2014. Titled Discipleship, it's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 8 for February 15 to 21, with the rich and famous. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come as we open your word to thank you for all you have done for us, that we can be your disciples, that we can be your followers, that we can have salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we open your word this week, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and bless us individually. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Let's read that again, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with great sorrow, with many sorrows. People, it has been said, spend money they don't have for things they don't need in order to impress people they don't like. How much truth that statement contains is debatable. What isn't debatable, however, is that money can have a powerful influence over all of us. Because personal financial habits comprehensively represent an individual's values, money is actually a spiritual matter. No doubt, that's why the Bible spends a lot of time talking about it. Also, fame frequently accompanies wealth. Motion picture stars, outstanding athletes and national politicians often possess both. Famous people exercise influence, which is one form of power. Jesus, however was not impressed by anyone's wealth or power. He simply sought to reach these wealthy people for the same reason that he tried to reach everyone else. He wanted them to have the kind of riches that money cannot buy. Sunday, February 16, Richly Blessed As fallen human beings, we are subject to jealousy, especially toward those who have more money than we do, regardless of how much money we ourselves might have already. The Bible, however, does not unconditionally disparage wealth or the wealthy. As with so much else in life, problems arise not from things themselves, but from the way in which we relate to them. Question. What counsel regarding wealth does Scripture offer? Why was it so important for Israel not to forget where its blessings came from? And we'll look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17 and 18. Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. 
and in Genesis chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And Genesis chapter 41, verses 41 to 43. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. And Job chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, five hundred female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And Daniel chapter 4 verses 28 to 31. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve months he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built with a, for a royal dwelling, by my mighty power, and for the honour of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. There's no question that people such as Abraham, Joseph, Mordecai, Esther, Hezekiah, Josiah, and Jehoshaphat were wealthy and spiritually minded as well. Nebuchadnezzar's example, however, shows the danger that comes from making wealth an idol, which is so easy for anyone to do. Conversely, for ancient Israel, Acknowledging God's generosity in this supplying of wealth brought spiritual and material blessings. They were specifically warned not to forget from where those blessings came. A good lesson for all of us, is it not? In short, riches themselves do not indicate spiritual poverty or indifference. There have been some very pious and faithful rich people, and some pretty nasty and evil ones as well. Either way, we should not turn a desire for money into an obsession, nor should we despise those who are wealthy. They need salvation as much as everyone else does. So to finish today, what are your own attitudes toward the rich? It's easy to be jealous, is it not? How can you learn to move beyond those feelings and see wealthy individuals as we all are, as souls in need of a saving knowledge of Jesus. Monday, February 17, Nighttime Rendezvous. Wealthy, well positioned people. Famous people did not intimidate Jesus. Christ neither resented nor revered the social elite, 
The Saviour recognised that financial prosperity could not supply peace, personal contentment, meaningful relationships or deep-seated purpose. The wealthiest magnate could easily be lonelier, emptier and angrier than the simplest, poorest and most humble Christian believer. Question. Analyse Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. Which events probably stimulated Nicodemus' interest in Jesus' message? A hint. Review John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. What significance does the darkness play? What is Christ's central message for Nicodemus? Well, first of all, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And the hint text we were to look at is John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, 
Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Nicodemus had witnessed God's power and authority as revealed through Jesus' ministry, and thus sought to meet with him, but in secret. Jesus might have refused this secretive overture, but unwilling that any should perish, he readily accepted this opportunity to bring Nicodemus another step closer to the kingdom. Nicodemus's poverty was spiritual, not material. Enriched with worldly goods and an elevated social position, he was nonetheless spiritually starving. Instinctively, Nicodemus rebelled against any suggestion that knowledgeable Israelites like himself should require conversion. Jesus, however, persisted, presenting Nicodemus with the eternal choice between judgment and salvation. Fearing denunciation and ridicule, Nicodemus refused to accept Christ's invitation. The interview had apparently failed. That spiritual seed, however, lay buried, slowly germinating beneath his heart's soil. Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, page 177, After the Lord's ascension, when the disciples were scattered by persecution, Nicodemus came boldly to the front. He employed his wealth in sustaining the infant church that the Jews had expected to be blotted out at the death of Christ. In the time of peril, he who had been so cautious and questioning was firm as a rock, encouraging the faith of the disciples and furnishing means to carry forward the work of the gospel. He was scorned and persecuted by those who had paid him reverence in other days. He became poor in this world's goods, yet he faltered not in the faith which had its beginning in that night conference with Jesus. Tuesday, February 18, Rich and Infamous Respectability does not always accompany wealth. Though many do earn their wealth honestly through hard work, industriousness and the blessings of God, others are outright crooks. Even worse, some make their money legally but immorally. For not everything immoral is illegal, as we all know so well. Question Compare Matthew nine ten to thirteen with Luke five twenty seven to thirty two and Luke nineteen verses one to ten. What motivated the criticism that Jesus faced? What does his reaction to the criticism teach us about grace? Well, first of all, Matthew chapter nine verses ten to thirteen. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
and Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. After these things he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of a short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jericho, Zacchaeus's residence, had become a significant commercial centre and housed the Herodian palace. Because of its geographical location, it maintained a customs-gathering station. Zacchaeus could have easily enriched himself legally as the chief regional customs officer. The narrative, however, suggests that greed induced him to overstep legal boundaries. Zealous patriots despised even honest customs collectors, seeing them as tools of their Roman oppressors. But they greatly disdained dishonest ones such as Zacchaeus. Matthew Levi occupied a similar position in Capernaum under Herod Antipas. Essentially, having assumed the role of Roman governmental uh, agents, they were viewed as traitors, or worse yet, thieving traitors. Nonetheless, Christ was not deterred. Defying social constraints, Jesus dined with them, drawing intense criticism from priests and commoners alike. And, by Jesus' interaction with them, these despised men were eventually won to the gospel. For example, Matthew not only became one of the twelve, but also an author in the New Testament. Again, we should be careful about the kind of spiritual judgments we make about people. Though not all sins are of the same magnitude, and some are certainly socially worse, and with good reason, than others, all of us are equal before God in that we are all in need of the righteousness of Christ. So, to finish today, think of some well-known but despised and perhaps understandably so personage in your culture. Imagine what it would be like if you had a chance to witness to that person. Would you even want to? 
what would you say? Wednesday, February 19. Gold-plated message. Question. Analyse the following passages from Mark and Luke. What practical advice do these verses contain? What spiritual warnings are found here? And how might these scriptures be utilised by believers to make disciples among the wealthy? First of all, Mark chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And Luke chapter 1 verses 51 to 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. And Luke chapter 6 verses 22 to 25. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. And finally, Luke chapter 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It has been said that we don't own our things. Our things own us. How easy it is to be consumed by material possessions. Hence, Jesus warned above about the deceitfulness of riches. Think through just how easy it is for money, or the pursuit of it, to blind our spiritual priorities. How crucial that we keep this truth in mind as we seek to reach those whose wealth might have already blinded them. At the same time, we all need a reality check. Some people live as if the one question that they will be asked on Judgment Day is, How much money did you make? 
Christ reverses our misplaced priorities. While possessions are not forbidden, they must be placed in perspective. Material goods are God's instruments designed to benefit humanity. They become blessings when shared rather than when hoarded. When hoarded, they become curses. Materialistic persons, whether rich or poor, are in danger of sacrificing their eternal well-being for temporal pleasures. Eternal satisfaction is exchanged for passing fancies that deteriorate and become outdated. Humans serve God or money, never both. Everyone, rich or poor, needs to be reminded, as it says in Mark 8.36, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So, to finish the day. This warning about materialism is important for all believers, not only for their own soul's sake, but for outreach as well. After all, how can we warn the wealthy about the potential spiritual dangers contained by their wealth when we ourselves are caught up in the same thing? Thursday, February 20. Terms of Endearment. Question. Study Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 26. What spiritual dangers are revealed in this passage? How might believers benefit today's rich young rulers? Well, let's begin with Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. But, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honour your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But... When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, and again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. He possessed credentials, qualifications, abundant material resources, unquestioned morality, and unlimited self-esteem. The youthful disciple candidate earnestly requested the Master's formula for salvation. Should Christ have been flattered? Finally, we're converting the upper classes. Apparently, no such exhilaration polluted Christ's thinking. 
Had this petitioner expected commendation, he was sorely disappointed. Instead, Christ established the Ten Commandments as the minimum standard of obedience. Perhaps the young ruler had congratulated himself. By his self-measurement, he surpassed the first hurdle. Christ, however, had elsewhere demanded righteousness that exceeded that which other religious leaders possessed. Would that standard be lowered to accommodate this candidate? Judas would have been ecstatic. Whoever handled public relations would have been overjoyed. Think what having wealthy supporters aboard could mean image-wise. Spiritual deficiencies, however, cannot be overlooked nor minimised, for the mission of Jesus is sacred. Compromise cannot be tolerated. Every selfish indulgence must be surrendered. Christ outlined the three-step process, sell your possessions, furnish the poverty-stricken, follow me. This was spiritually dangerous territory. Although young, the would-be disciple had accumulated a sizable fortune. Luxurious houses, beautiful vineyards, productive fields, fashionable clothing, jewellery collections, servants, livestock, perhaps speedy customised chariots. All these might have flashed through his mind. God's terms were inflexible. Neither bargaining nor negotiating could reduce the price. Everything for Jesus, worldly greatness exchanged for heavenly treasure. As Ellen White wrote in the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, April 19, 1898, how many have come to Christ ready to cast their interests in with his, and like the rich young ruler, earnestly desiring to inherit eternal life. But when the cost is presented to them, when they are told that they must forsake all, houses and lands, wife and children, and count not their lives dear unto themselves, they go away sorrowful. They want the treasures of heaven, and the life that measures with the life of God, but they are not willing to give up their earthly treasures. They are not willing to surrender all to obtain the crown of life. Friday, February 21. From the book Ministry of Healing, page 210, we read, Much is said concerning our duty to the neglected poor. Should not some attention be given to the neglected rich? Many look upon this class as hopeless, and they do little to open the eyes of those who, blinded and dazed by the glitter of earthly glory, have lost eternity out of their reckoning. Thousands of wealthy men have gone to their graves unwarned, but indifferent as they may appear, many among the rich are soul-burdened. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. He that says to fine gold, Thou art my confidence, has denied the God that is above. None of them can be by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever. Riches and worldly honour cannot satisfy the soul. Many among the rich are longing for some divine assurance, some spiritual hope. Many long for something that will bring to an end the monotony of their aimless lives. 
Many, in official life, feel their need of something which they have not. Few among them go to church, for they feel that they receive little benefit. The teaching they hear does not touch the heart. Shall we make no personal appeal to them? And that brings us to our two large discussion questions for this week. One, wealthy converts played important roles in financially sustaining the infant Christian church. Though exceptions existed, sacrificial giving characterized the well-to-do believers. God's kingdom consists of honest-hearted people from every social class. Christians should be neither intimidated nor enamoured by wealthy people, but should fearlessly proclaim God's revelation that they may be saved. Understanding that we should never compromise theology and principle, what practical changes can your church make so that wealthy people will find it easier to find fellowship here? How is your church's evangelistic strategy addressing the need to make discipling among the well-to-do? What specific things can your church realistically do to reach the rich? And two, look at the Bible verses that Ellen White used in the statement in Friday's study. What is the essence of what they are saying? How can we help those who think that their happiness will be found in wealth and material possessions to realise that they are on the wrong track. Inside Story Our mission story this week comes from Cambodia. It's titled, A Flame for Jesus. Daniel Sante is a shining star for Jesus in Cambodia. He says, Ever since I can remember, I've loved Jesus. Daniel's father was the example that inspired the boy to share God's love with others. When I was seven years old, Daniel says, I told my dad I wanted to be like him and preach some day. He told me, You don't have to wait. Start now. Share Jesus with your friends now. Daniel accepted his father's challenge and began sharing God's love with his friends. I felt God's power through the Holy Spirit working in me, Daniel said. He is working in my heart and helping me share my love for Jesus with other children. Daniel began traveling with his father and teaching the children while his dad taught the adults. Then his father became ill. Before long, he was too sick to travel or preach. He became too weak to work at his government job. One day he gathered his family around him and told them he wasn't going to get well. He challenged them to stay close to God and to continue sharing God's love with everyone they met. He promised his family that one day they would be together again when Jesus comes. They would never have to say goodbye. Daniel's father died when Daniel was just eight. Some days I miss him so much, Daniel says but I have hope that I will see him soon in heaven. Then I will tell him that I kept my promise to preach to others. Daniel and his three siblings and their mother continue sharing their faith in Cambodia. His mother works hard to provide for the children and keep them in a Seventh-day Adventist school. Daniel helps his mother around the house and enjoys reading. He knows that God is calling him to be a pastor, just like his father. 
I want to keep telling others about Jesus, he says, to help them know Christ. Daniel remembers asking his father when Jesus will come again. His father told him, Jesus will come when everyone has had a chance to hear God's message of love through Jesus. Daniel continues telling others that God loves them and that Jesus died for them. He can't wait until Jesus can come so he can see his Father again and together they can meet their Heavenly Father for the first time. Our mission offerings help support the Adventist school that Daniel and his siblings attend. This is one way we can help share God's love in Cambodia and around the world. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful.